Hello, and welcome to A History of Japan. Season 7, Episode 16, The Genko War, Part 2. The Japanese phrase shikataganai means there's nothing to be done. It's also commonly translated as it cannot be helped. It is often employed by people facing intractable problems which, being impossible to resolve, must instead be endured. I imagine that even the most staunch supporters of imperial supremacy believed that when it came to the existence of the bakufu, there was nothing that could be done. Shikataganai. The Jokyu War of 1221 had been an absolute disaster for those who sided with retired Emperor Gotoba. For over 100 years, it served as a cautionary tale for those who entertained notions of raising arms against the Kamakura Bakufu. Even Kuge and scholars who truly believed on principle that the emperor and his court should reign supreme generally acknowledged that they were forced to endure shogunate interference whether they were happy about it or not. I think it's fair to say that the Kamakura Bakufu also believed in its own immortality. The careful, attentive administration provided by the earliest Hojo regents had withered into a self-serving, sycophantic placeholder which was no longer serving its purpose. While they still had the ability to command the deployment of large armies composed mostly of eastern warriors, their lackadaisical approach to governance infected all sectors of their administration. Throughout the remainder of the Genko War, it became clear that Kamakura had been sorely neglecting the loyalty of its most influential retainers. Loyalty among the samurai of the Kamakura period was often a fluid consideration. Those who managed to gain enough influence to gather a following of vassals were well advised to nurture that relationship through bonding events like hunting trips, festivals, and participating together in religious ceremonies. Regarding retainers, most appreciated being consulted during large-scale decisions, marrying into their liege's family, and the respect of their patron. Vassals and retainers who felt that they had been slighted or marginalized by their liege could be extremely dangerous. Emperor Godaigo understood the underlying dissatisfaction of the Bakufu vassals and exploited it in his correspondence with them. He promised them favorable Jito appointments, which were more lucrative than their current stewardship, an unprecedented step for an imperial government. Control over Jito and Shugo appointments had always rested with the shogunate, never with the court. By trying to assert his authority over land income distribution, Emperor Godaigo was very cleverly driving a wedge between the Bakufu and its vassals while supporting the overall project of restoring imperial supremacy. The latter-day Kamakura Bakufu seems to have completely lost their predecessor's former ability to gain the loyalty of at least enough powerful Kanto families to make rebellion a pipe dream. Their high-handed tendency to threaten and coerce tended to alienate their retainers for some reason, and like many regimes throughout history who mistook tough talk for effectively wielding power, they would be nothing but surprised by the result. When we last left Kusunoki Masashige and Prince Moriyoshi, they were holed up in Chihaya Fortress with 2,000-ish samurai repulsing assaults from the massive Bakufu army 
which had failed to take the hilltop structure for ten weeks straight. Emperor Go-Daigo, meanwhile, had entered Hoki province in Chugoku and sent out a call to arms which every day was swelling the numbers of his growing western army. Those following the deposed, exiled emperor had good reason to be concerned for the life of their rebellion. While they had been partly inspired by Masashige's long and successful defense against a massive shogunate army, the Bakufu had responded to Emperor Godaigo's return by dispatching another large force to take on his assembling army, led by none other than Ashikaga Takauji. Frustrated by the siege of Chihaya, the shogunate also ordered Nita Yoshisada to gather his vassals and crush Kusunoki Masashige and Prince Moriyoshi once and for all. At this point, there is no question that the odds were still in the Bakufu's favor. If everything had gone to plan, the shogunate would have probably won the Genko War and perhaps governed Japan for another century or even longer. Emperor Go-Daigo was wise to these developments and responded accordingly. He did not limit his correspondence only to anti-Bakufu samurai, but also wrote letters to various leaders in the command structure of the shogunate, including both Ashikaga Takauji and Nita Yoshisada. The potential to earn a higher place in the new political order was a very tempting prize. It is easy to imagine the samurai who flocked to Godaigo's banner being filled with anxiety with every report of Takauji's army's movements. They marched through Chubu and then into Kansai. Surely they intended to gather some more warriors from the garrison of the Rokohara Tandai and then crush Emperor Godaigo's partisans in Hoki. As I've been teasing, that's not what happened. Ashikaga Takauji marched to the west, recruiting warriors along the way and building a grand army. Sources indicate that he had already begun to solidify his own power base by confirming the holdings of various clans throughout Kanto and promising armed support if those claims were challenged. This is a notable power grab, as the Kamakura Bakufu was supposed to be the arbiters of land grants, but Takauji was acting on his own behalf. Jeffrey Mass, in an essay he wrote for the book The Origins of Japan's Medieval World, notes that Takauji was essentially making himself a great military patron. He arrived in Yamashiro province, where Heian-kyo is located, recruited troops, and struck for Tamba province, where he swelled his ranks once more with eager samurai loyal to him. Then they circled south and marched straight for the capital, at which point the Bakufu realized they had been betrayed. The fighting that ensued in Heian-kyo was fierce. He immediately set his army against the Rokuhara mansion, which they besieged and burned, killing most of the garrison and neutralizing the Bakufu's presence in the capital. The Hojo leaders of the Rokuhara Tandai made a swift escape, but Takauji's men tracked them down and killed them. Ashikaga Takauji was unequivocally declaring his allegiance to Godaigo Tenno and against the government of Kamakura. Takauji had not turned against the shogunate out of any high-minded ideals. Given how negative their relationship had become in recent years, what with the Bakufu keeping his family hostage to coerce him onto the battlefield back in 1331, he did not feel any lingering guilt over betraying Kamakura. He hoped that Emperor Godaigo would name him the new shogun if he helped him take back the chrysanthemum throne. Nita Yoshisada, meanwhile, had made plans of his own. 
He had been communicating secretly with Prince Moriyoshi and received an imperial order from Emperor Godaigo to destroy the Kamakura Bakufu. He had likewise received orders from Kamakura to gather his vassals and join the assault on Chihaya Fortress. From his home province of Kozuke in northern Kanto, he indeed rallied many vassals to his banner and recruited new vassals to swell his ranks. He encouraged powerful clans in Echigo, Kai, and Shinano provinces to join him, and many agreed that the Bakufu had to go. The shogunate's loyal warriors were now overextended. The large force laying siege to Chihaya was too far to be of any aid, and those who had pledged allegiance to Takauji now joined him in rebellion against the Bakufu. There were some local garrisons whom they now called upon as alarming reports of Nita's southern march flooded Kamakura, but all they could do was organize a hasty defense and hope to hold out against Yoshisada's incursion. After marshalling his forces at Ikushina Shrine in Kozuke, Nikta Yoshisada led his massive host into battle against the Hojo partisans. The first engagement at Kotetashi was indecisive, but the second battle at Kumegawa resulted in victory for the loyalists. Far from a crushing victory, the shogunate forces managed an orderly retreat to Bubaigawara, near the Tama River in Musash province. They waited there for reinforcements, but Yoshisada's men needed some time to rest from the exhaustion of battle. Three days later, they marched on Bubaigawara. The fighting at the Tama River was fierce, and initially the imperialist faction got the worst of it. Yoshisada's vanguard attempted to cross the river and was met by a defensive archery barrage. The shogunate army, at this point being somewhat larger than Yoshisada's, advanced in a mass charge that forced the loyalists back. It is generally understood that the Bakufu's forces made a fatal mistake at this point in the battle. Just when they appeared to be winning the engagement, they fell back to their defensive positions and continued to wait for reinforcements. Had they continued advancing, they may very well have routed Yoshisada's army, and the course of history may well have been quite different. Meanwhile, it was Yoshisada who received reinforcements as a leader of the Miura clan arrived with retainers and vassals in tow. They attacked the shogunate army from two directions, eventually forcing the Bakufu warriors into a panicked rout, and thus ultimately won the Battle of Bubaigawara. The surviving shogunate samurai fled to Kamakura, where they helped prepare the eastern capital for a siege. In spite of its humble beginnings as a fishing village, Kamakura was actually quite defensible. Surrounded by steep hills on three sides, the only ways in were a series of narrow, guarded passes where numbers conferred no advantage to an invader. Yoshisada's army attempted to enter through the Gokuraku Pass from the west, but they were swiftly turned back by well-protected defenders using standing shields. Next, they turned south, determined to find another way to enter the city from the seaside, but the southern bank was composed of steep cliffs and rough waves. The solution was to wait for low tide, then cross along the dry beach after the waves had receded. According to a local folktale, Nikta Yoshisada threw his sword into the sea as an offering to the sun goddess Amaterasu, and that it was her divine intervention that caused the waters to recede. Miraculous phenomena or not, this approach proved successful, and the loyalist army burst into Kamakura to the horrified shock of the Bakufu defenders. 
Yoshisada's men killed and burned as they went, trying to find the Hojo leaders to take prisoner for Emperor Go-Daigo. They would never get the chance. The Hojo clan leadership, including Hojo Takatoki, gathered their families and fled for Toshoji Temple, where they all committed ritual suicide. Thus ended the Kamakura Bakufu. When the news of the shogunate's downfall reached central Japan, the army assaulting Chihaya Fortress abandoned the attack and returned to their fiefs. There was a great celebration in Heian-kyo, where an exuberant Emperor Go-Daigo prepared to take up the reins of government once more and steer the ship of state into a future politically dominated by emperors and the imperial court. While Emperor Go-Daigo wanted to build a future defined by imperial supremacy, those who had supported him did not have uniform motivations. Some, like Kusunoki Masashige, were true believers who unflinchingly supported the restoration of a powerful Tenno. Others, like Ashikaga Takauji, hoped for a promotion into the new government which the emperor would build, as well as some rewards for their service. Samurai like Nita Yoshisada, on the other hand, were hoping that the emperor might help them correct past injustices and maybe even settle some old scores. By rallying a resoundingly successful rebellion against the shogunate, Emperor Go-Daigo had accomplished something that had been previously seen as impossible. However, it was one thing to unite disparate samurai groups against a common foe, quite another to keep these disparate groups happy under his new regime. Old rivalries still simmered beneath the surface, and now that the war was over, the question of who really owned the victory and therefore was entitled to the best rewards would prove impossible to settle to everyone's satisfaction. Next season, we will explore Emperor Go-Daigo's innovative attempts at reforming the Japanese government and continue following the careers of Kusunoki Masashige, Nita Yoshisada, and Ashikaga Takauji as each vied for militant supremacy in the new order. While this is the end of our narrative episodes for this season, there will be two more bonus episodes regarding Kamakura period art and poetry respectively, which will be released over the next two Mondays. Patreon subscribers will also receive three exclusive bonus episodes this season, including one dedicated to the weapons and armor of the Mongol Empire. Next time, we will enjoy hearing some selections of poetry from the Kamakura period, including many composed by the leading figures of the age. Until then, thank you for listening. If you would like access to exclusive bonus episodes, as well as ad-free versions of the regular episodes, please consider supporting this podcast at patreon.com slash ahistoryofjapan. Japan. <laughs>